Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you in Tulsa. Um, I do uh, have to say, uh, Praxis was just extraordinary. I know a few of you got to be with us, but you know, it just for me, it's just worth saying um, because I know your church has been so instrumental in putting it on, and Pastor Ed's uh, vision and leadership, and just all of your support. It my favorite conference I've ever been to. Last year I said Praxis my favorite conference I'd ever been to, and this year it was it was a notch up for me. I'm. I have a spiritual hangover because I actually have been crying a lot in the last few days and all stirred up, but it's been wonderful. It's so good. And then I got back just in time to really experience just the joys of Tulsa in ways I had not before. Just the, the sirens last night were just so sweet and serenaded me while I was staying at Brent and Janice's house. And I'm asking, you know, lots of questions for them, like about what's normal and at what point I should hide under the bed and <laughs> what point I should begin to just weep uncontrollably and expect to die. See, I don't know. I don't know what the rules are here. So, so that, was, that was cool. Um, I'm feeling very much, at, very much at home here. And rumor has it is. I don't know. It just, just could be just a dirty rumor that I'm going to be hanging out with you all more. We'll see. I'm, I'm, uh, I really love your church. I love being here. And um, I'm especially excited this morning. If you can give me a little latitude to just geek out. The, the things that make me excited in life, other than the NBA playoffs, there's nothing, there's nothing better for me than when I'm preaching the lectionary, which I try to do. Like a sign. I like this idea that then, you know, I think God can take me places I wouldn't otherwise choose to go so that then I don't just go around talking about the same four or five things I'd always want to talk about. And when I saw several weeks ago what the lectionary assignment was for this weekend, I got so excited that I couldn't stand it because this is a text I've never preached on before, but I couldn't imagine myself ever picking if it were not assigned. And I think it is the coolest text. I mean, I think it is so awesome and sort of disruptive and just like, I don't know, just again, a passage. No, I've never heard a sermon on it. I'm sure they've been preached, but I'm going to have a really good time with this one, if that's okay with you, because this text for me is just, it's just fun. Let me pray real quick. Lord, uh, we are grateful to be able to enter into these words and their oddness and into the wonder of them, and we just pray that you would grant us some kind of revelatory insight, not just to be able to study passages, but to have a, a sense of your heart revealed to us and your ways revealed to us, and we just pray that you would shine the light on our path so that we would be able to see some things that we have not seen and cannot see unless you show them to us. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. No further ado, let's get right to this. Acts chapter 1. I'm so excited. So, this, of course, is after the, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. The disciples now are having to deal with a really practical problem, and that is, after Judas betrayed Jesus, and then he went out and killed himself, now they have an open slot in the band, right? Like, we've lost, we've lost one. We need to find somebody who can fill in. Now, I am, I am fascinated by this entire process because it's a pretty unique gap. And when you think about the fact that, you know, okay, counting Judas then, you only have total 13 apostles. Well, you know, Paul's an apostle, right? So we'll add him as another. We'll say 14 in that way. But this, this is a pretty small group of people in the history of the world Unique place of prestige, a unique, a unique place in history and all of that. So this would certainly seem to be a really weighty decision 
And how exactly do you figure such a thing out? I mean, I'm not really a fan, but I remember years ago that Metallica's bass player left, and they had auditions. It was in a documentary. It was really interesting. And I know that, like, when the lead singer of Journey died, that, like, didn't I think they did the same thing? I think they did, like, auditions, you know, to be the lead singer of Journey. This is presumably a little bigger than that, than if one of the Beatles has left. I mean, we're talking about the 12 disciples. There will never be another, like, 12 disciples. I mean, this is it. This is pretty elite business. And so what is the, the, the scientific process by which you come to figure out what to do in a situation like this? Like, how do you decide? We're talking about people who um, ha- have walked so intimately with Jesus so, so what will they do? As the, you know, certainly there would seem to be some fasting and some praying. Surely God is going to speak in a way that's going to be demonstrative and clear, and uh, there's going to be no ambiguity at all because you can't mess around and 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 mess up uh, the the twelve disciples, right? This is important business, unless you think about the way the other 12 had always been. Not only Judas, but you know, you think about how unqualified these guys were. We think about Peter's own betrayal of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these aren't if... I'm, I years ago used to read all the business books that Christian leaders are supposed to read. And if you're reading like kind of a, a book like Jim Collins' Good to Great, like it doesn't ever seem like Jesus is good at getting the right people on the bus and getting them in the right seats on the bus. It just seems like it's the wrong people on the wrong bus. I mean, like, you know, you never get a sense that, like, everybody was doing, like, personality tests and that Jesus was then sorting based on Myers-Briggs who would be able to have a good working relationship. And this is true long after all this, but I'm just riffing now. I hope that's okay. I mean, because then, you know, long after all this, right, like Paul and Peter have a personality conflict and they're out on missionary journeys with John Mark and they can't seem to kind of, you know, get it together. So clearly there are some, there are all kind of tensions and that, I mean, it seems to happen. I'm getting ahead of myself. Acts 1, though, we're trying to pick this 12th apostle and I want you to see this very spiritual discerning process that the disciples go through to figure this out. Acts one fifteen. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons. And he said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. And yes, we're moving on. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two. All right, so we, we, we quickly, we don't know what the criteria were. I do think it's important to point out that Obviously, there had been some kind of deliberation already, so they didn't just kind of go out to a crowd and, you know, somebody's just going to kind of pray and then point their finger. And, I mean, there, there was some sort of process even before this to narrow down. We got two guys that we think would be qualified. We, we think conceivably one of these men could be a good fit uh, to join the 12. Uh, so they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed... Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Which I am so with this so far. This sounds great. So they talked a little bit uh, just among themselves. 
who seemed like they would be a good fit. They tried to discern based on what they've seen, the, the, these people that they knew kind of within this early community. We've come with two names. They come to the Lord. They say, we want your will, not our will, but your will be done. You show us, you reveal to us who the right person is to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Boom, end of the lectionary reading. Isn't that awesome? Casting lots, there were different ways of doing it, so we're not entirely sure what this looked like. Um, Usually involved kind of a version of sticks and stones and throwing the stones and... Uh, some people have used an analogy of uh, kind of like rolling dice. I called this sermon Roll the Dice, but I don't think, I, I think the consensus seems to be that the closest equivalent practice we would have would be maybe a little bit more like flipping a coin to try to make a decision. So there's something about, me that, about this to me that just strikes me as utterly hilarious that when you're trying to find the 12th member of the band, that you have a little prayer meeting, say, Lord, we want your will, show us what we're supposed to do. You flip a coin, and then there's your guy. Which, by the way, think about being the other guy who didn't make it into the 12 apostles. You know what I'm saying? Like, how terrible of a story is that? You know, this is like you were Paul McCartney's roommate who also had a band that you started in high school or were pretty good. I mean, I would think that this has to really stink to go the rest of your life knowing how close. What if the lot had fallen differently, right? What if it had been somebody else? And it just looks superstitious. It just looks kind of, it just looks strange. And, uh, you know, I even just for fun this week, I talked to some friends. I was at Praxis. So I talked to my friends who were kind of fellow Bible scholars, theologians, try to get their read on this. And, you know, I know some people would kind of say, well, this is just before the Holy Spirit's poured out. So maybe after that, they would do it differently. Oh, you know, okay. And some people would say like, uh, yeah, but at this point they don't have the New Testament. So once you have the New Testament, then you're able to discern the will of God and all that's incredibly clear, which I think is such a cool idea. I just know that in my life in ministry, I've had not, not as weighty, but comparable kinds of decisions and I have the New Testament <laughs> and, and, and we pray and that doesn't seem to make it absolutely explicitly clear who's supposed to lead the kids outreach ministry or the music, that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not always clear just because you have the Bible in some way. I, I think when anybody talks about a text like this, they want to be cautious because they don't encourage people to be superstitious so that then you're trying to make massive life decisions and you pray a 30-second prayer and you go around and you start flipping coins. Like, I, I don't want to encourage you to do that. I mean, I think that it's, it's good and right to weigh Every consideration that you know, let's look at the facts as we best understand them. Let's look at who the best fit is. And I'm going to go ahead and make this real broad, real fast, right? So what we're talking about decision-making. So this is not just about choosing an apostle. This is, it's graduation season, I know. Um, where should I go to school? Where should I go do a graduate program? Or should I do a graduate program? What job should I take? Who's the person that I'm supposed to marry if I'm to get married at all? You know, all of these decisions about relationships, job, life, et cetera, et cetera. So like on one hand, I, I would say, yeah, I don't think that this is giving us a prescription 
to, you know, to, to flip a coin. And I, I'm getting all my disclaimers out of the way up front. I do believe that sometimes God has a way of speaking uh, in a way that will be demonstrative and clear about a situation. I, I want to affirm, I believe that God can do that. I believe that God can speak to you in a way that says, go to this place, go to this particular place, go to this particular brook. I'm thinking Old Testament terms here. Um, go, go to this person. Take this job, be with this person, move to this country, etc. I mean, like, I do believe that God really can speak that way. Now, the giant footnote here is that it's extremely rare in a way that's very clear. I contend, I contend that that's rare. I think that for most people, there are no more than a handful of times in the course of an entire life with God when those things are incredibly clear, like in a sense to where there, there's no ambiguity, you're 100% sure that this is the right thing to do. And I, I hope this, I just realized how terrible or arrogant this might sound. If you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not true for me, like I always know or whatever, like you're the person I'm worried about because that kind of certainty will get you into trouble. If you're the one who always thinks like wherever I go, my steps are so clearly directly ordered that it's, it's always just like according to script. I would worry about you, you know? It's like that's, not, that's probably not healthy. You know, it's, um, we, we, I, very rarely do we know these things for sure. So whether or not we flip a coin, here's, here's how most of our decision-making really connects with a text like this one, is that there comes a certain point where you look at all the information that you have, yes, you have a conversation in community with people. This is, I assume, how they figured out who the two candidates were. That's good. You pray about it. Definitely. We do want to pray. We do want to invite God to have his way. We do want to say, not my will, but thy will be done. We do want to create space for the will of God in this way. But at the end of the day, whether you flip a coin or not, you just have to make a decision. And you're not sure that it's the right decision. You hope it's the right decision. Uh, incidentally, often, uh, you know, again, Pentecostal charismatic folks like myself, when we do say, God said to do this or, or, or that, and especially as preachers, we'll say this very confidently, to say that I am certain that God spoke to me about blah, 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 is a way of saying I am probably like 53% convinced <laughs> that this is what I'm supposed to do. So you can feel free to, to translate that when I say I'm very certain that God tells me something. I, I might shouldn't have this much fun here. Like, do you really think that every building program that's ever happened in the history of churches has been because God gave some kind of a direct revelation? I mean, do you really think that? People build businesses. They add onto their homes and stuff all the time. doesn't necessarily mean there was some revelatory word from God. But when you have a capital campaign, this is just, you know, yeah, we know we've heard from God. We have already committed to the, to the we, we've signed contracts. So we're very certain we've heard from God. We, because if we don't raise $2 million, we will lose our shirt. So we fasted, we've prayed. If you don't give, God won't bless you. Someone in your family might get cancer if you don't give in the campaign. God might kill me if you don't give in the campaign. Like, 
I mean, I'm just saying, this is like, we, we, we have real reasons. I don't want to make too much fun of that. It's just that our, our version of certainty, once again, oftentimes means this is a strong hunch. We've thought and we've prayed about it. There's a, there's a phrase in the book of Acts, another place I really love that I wish we'd use more in church, probably a little healthier. I need, probably need to use this more in my life, where the apostles say, uh, say, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. That's a great way of speaking. <laughs> because oftentimes when I say, I know I've heard from God, what I really mean is, it seemed good to me in the Holy Spirit. Seemed. Seemed. Not foolproof, but it seemed. The reason I feel like this is so important is that when we come to various crossroads in our lives of all sorts, any and all sorts, and there's some kind of an opportunity set before you and you don't know, should I take it or not? Which door should I choose? Which path should I take? If you think that for righteous, holy, good people that Jesus loves, if you're keeping all the rules, not breaking any commandments, not swearing, and you're being nice to helping old ladies across the street like whatever, then inevitably God will speak to you in a way that's clear. And if you don't have that kind of clarity, there must be something wrong with you. Like that is a miserable way to live. And trying to make choices becomes so paralyzing then. Because in absence of some kind of super clear, direct word from God, what, I mean, what are you going to do? I, I just find all that can be really overwhelming to where it can feel like you, know, you don't want to choose anything because you're waiting on the moment where God is going to make it so overwhelmingly clear that, that, that it's almost like you don't have a choice in the matter at all. I will give the disclaimer once more, and then I'm not revisiting it. Sometimes that can happen where God can make things so abundantly clear that it really does feel like you have no choice whatsoever. This is what you're supposed to do. But it doesn't happen that often. And while I don't have time to develop this in all the ways that I want, I'm going to tell you what I deeply believe. Uh, many of you, and I, I don't know, when I was a, a young believer and caring about theology and reading theology, how many conversations late at night did you have wrangling about predestination or free will and what God predetermines and what's up to us and all those kinds of things? And you could stack up these texts where it would seem, you know, we certainly have many passages in Scripture where God seems to have a very particular clear will and that seems to be revealed. And other times where that seems to be a little murkier. I, w without having time to develop everything, I'm going to give you my like bottom line with these kinds of things. Some of you will not find this to be encouraging. I apologize in advance. I don't mean to disrupt your tightly ordered worldview in which everything makes sense all the time. Uh, uh, I, it, when you have this sense of, is my life on script or not? Am I following the proper divine script? I am so convinced at this point in my life that there is no script. I mean, I really believe that. I don't believe that everybody has a particular script. I just don't. I don't believe that. Um, these things are wildly unpopular, not just within church, but within pop culture. If you watch like romantic comedies, I don't believe that there's one magic person who's set aside out of all the billions who've lived for you to marry. And that if you miss them, then you miss the one. And if you find that person, then they will complete you and your life will forever be bliss. And you know, but if you don't, then you've missed the boat forever, and now your life is going to be one nonstop succession of one tragedy after the next. 
because you, you, know, you didn't choose the right person. I don't think that. I don't think it's likely that there's just one job that God would allow you to do or that you would be able to do. I think there's probably some essential gifts that God has placed in you and there's a kind of purpose and calling, kind of destiny that needs to be realized. But it could probably be expressed in a number of different directions and that would be okay. Um, I, 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 think it's in, I think it is entirely, entirely possible when you're thinking like, should I go to this school or that school, this job or that job, where more than one of those things might be right, might be okay, and this is gonna, I'm gonna sound like I'm talking like Yoda, and I don't mean to, but sometimes I think the right choice is the choice that you make just because it's the choice that you made, <laughs> and God is inviting you to collaborate with him and to co-create with him. He actually gives us a, a role to play. I, I, do, I don't wanna minimize the fact that I think it's really important that we get to a place of surrender where we say we want God's will above our own. That's necessary, right? That, that, that Jesus in the garden, not my will, but that will be done. We want to get to a place where we release control over the outcome, and, and, and we, we do want what, whatever it is that, that, that would be best, however God would lead. Like That's a really important place to get to. But don't think that even when you get to that kind of place of submission and surrender, that that means that necessarily everything just magically falls into place or that God is always going to, to orchestrate things in a way that's so incredibly clear. Here, here's how I was thinking about it earlier, and this is going to sound ridiculous. Y'all know that whole Jesus take the wheel song? Jesus take the wheel? All right. Wonderful song, I guess. Right? Wonderful song. Jesus take the wheel. Like, that's a great idea. Because, I mean, and I get the, the point is like release and surrender. I like that. We're going to give things over to Jesus. Cool. But like, without wishing to be hyper-literal, and please don't experiment with this, if you pull out of the parking lot today, <laughs> turn left by the, by the church, and you take your hands off the steering wheel, and you say, Jesus, take the wheel, it is possible that an angel might come in and drive the car for you. But 99.9% .9 of the time, you are almost certainly going to run into a tree if you take your hands off the steering wheel saying, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Um, it, it's, sometimes I think the prayer is not, Jesus, take the wheel, because Jesus wants to teach you how to drive, right? Like he's giving you the keys to the car, and, and, and he wants you to learn, which, by the way, and see, this gets really complicated, and, I, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going for it in this message. I don't even know. I need to be careful of time. This gets so big, like so fast. You're getting my whole magnum opus on all of these ideas, like everything I ever think about this. But I just, like, I, I'm, just, I'm just so convinced that, it, it, you know, and in, in, yes, we want to give God control. We want to relinquish not my will, but thou be done. All of that's like really, really good. But I'm just so convinced that like, gracious, even, even wrong turns so often become important. Even mistakes often become important. That, that's another reason why I hate where people I think can, can get so paralyzed. It comes a sense of what if I make the wrong decision? Sometimes you're going to make wrong decisions. And sometimes making bad choices is important too. Doesn't mean that if you had it all to do over again, you'd do it the same way. But I've just seen it happen too often where someone does make some sort of a wrong decision, bad decision, what wouldn't seem to be the wisest. And it seems to be the thing that God most uses to ultimately save their life, get them exactly where they're supposed to be, because that's just how good God is. 
And if there's this sense that like the whole world is contingent on me making the, the most wise and proper choices, that is too much weight for you to carry. We want to choose wisely. We want to discern what's going to be best for people around us. We want to discern, you know, am I going to harm someone or not? Like, man, these are all huge questions. We want to walk in love and make decisions out of love. And yet at the same time, I just think that there has to be a sense of room that the world doesn't revolve around. You know, if I went to the wrong school, everything collapses. If I took the wrong job, everything would be awful. You might do what seems to be the wrong thing, and it's exactly what God uses to get you to the place that would seem to be exactly where, where you're supposed to be and exactly what that's supposed to look like. And I'm fumbling around here because I don't have good language for any of that, except I will say this. I think we need to get to a place to where we're not quite as, as stingy about needing to decide whether or not every choice, every decision, every through, is it good or bad. Like, let's, let's figure out what does it look like to press into to, to God here what does it look like to move with grace? What is it we definitely want to walk in authenticity and we want to walk closely with other brothers and sisters and trust their discernment, not just our own? Like those things are like always right to do. That's always got to be good. But beyond all of that, right? Like there, there just got to be some space and room to where it's everything doesn't feel so weighty that if I get this, this wrong, I, I think I've told this here before at some point, but I don't, I'm not exaggerating. When I was in middle school, I would be so prayerful about what to wear every single morning, so help me, because I was just sure that God had a, like a revealed will for like every outfit. And this was not a great time for fashion, so I would like be between multiple fuzzy sweaters with a different color turtleneck, and I would be like, which turtleneck, which sweater, which gold cross am I supposed to wear? And I was so intent on this notion of like finding perfect obedience that I thought, if I pick the wrong outfit, then that might mean that because I've been disobedient here, that God won't open up the door for me to witness to the right person. So then they're not going to hear the gospel. And what if they were supposed to get saved and go to Africa and translate to a tribe that had never had the Bible before? And now they're not going to go. And all these people are going to go to hell. And I'm going to go to hell because I didn't pick the right outfit, you know? This is where some of you are like, this person is really disturbed. Why do, why do we have him here? Like, I, I really, though, like, I mean, I, I think like that, which is why all this is so intense for me. I don't think I've ever used this in a sermon, but this is how I think all the time these days. I think that if, and you can plug in whatever scenario in your life if you want to, if you think about any decision that you need to make now or in the near future, and you had three doors and there's this sense of like, okay, here are three doors, here are three opportunities. I can take this job, that job. I can move this place, that place, go to this school, that, that school, date this person, this person. You know, plug in whatever you want, but there are three choices. And you really think in terms of like, okay, which door is God behind? Where, where is Jesus hiding in the shadows behind the door? Man, that, that gets really confusing, and especially if maybe like God just to, to mess with us is sort of, you know, like moving stuff around. You don't know where the, I don't know where the, the, the marble is. It could be under any of these. And then you open up door number two and, ooh, Jesus is not there. What will I do now, right? Like that, 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 that's so often how we think. It's like, where, which door is God behind? Now, I do find, again, 
that there often um, there are better ways of doing a thing. You know, there are more and less there are more or less destructive choices to make. There's so many things I, I could say about all that, but at the end of the day, I'm really convinced of this. Like God is never hiding behind one particular door. So that if you make the right choice, then Jesus is there. But if you make the wrong choice, then Jesus is not there. Jesus is, this could be taken so very far, but I'm going to stand by this regardless. I'm not saying the analogy is perfect. But I think Jesus is behind all the doors. He's in front of all the doors. He's with you in that process. Like He fills up the whole universe. David says, of course, where can I go to flee from your presence? Even if I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take on the wings of the morning and I fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, that you are there. So it's not a question of whether or not God will be present. God will always be present. And God will always be doing something beautiful and redemptive from, from, from whatever this place is. God will always be trying to engineer something beautiful and good. Doesn't mean you can't make a wrong decision or make one that you will really regret. But there, 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 is, there, is, no, there is no path where on the other side, like, there, there, there's no God. Because God always... Is, is, is seeking after you. God is always ready to be found from wherever you are, from whatever place. So, so nothing, you're not gonna therefore break down your life so bad that God is not able to, to do something good and beautiful and redemptive, you know? I just think it's really important. So not then so that you become cavalier about choices and well, it doesn't matter because Jesus is gonna be there because no, see, there's still such a thing called gravity and if you jump off the top of a tall building, you will hit the semen and it will hurt, right? It's like, so there are still consequences to choices. I mean, absolutely, we have to deal with consequences of actions. But, but you don't have to worry about getting outside of God's love. You don't have to worry about backing yourself into a corner that's so tight that, that, uh, that, that you're trapped in some way, or let me put it this way. I really believe that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no such thing as a dead end, right? There's no such thing as a dead end. I think that, I just think this is important because oftentimes, man, this message probably needs a lot of editing, but I am having such a good time right now. I just think like oftentimes that in order for us to grow in grace, for us to grow in our own faith, that means that we have to embrace some choices that involve a fairly considerable amount of risk. And there is always, it does feel like rolling the dice. It does feel like, well, I just flipped a coin. Well, I hope, I, I'm going forward, I hope this is right. It's important that we embrace those kinds of risks. And if you live in such a place to where you're trying to always make sure that you never take a risk in fear that somehow God will be mad at you or do you the wrong thing. I mean, I just think that's such a miserable, such a, that, that's not being really alive. Far better to, to, to have a spirit that just is, is willing to go forward and not, to, to not be just so paralyzed by fear that you can't decide anything. My, my experience has been if you keep your heart humble and open, if you go through a door or a path that really isn't ultimately what God wants, he will reveal that to you in due time. You'll become uncomfortable, you have no peace, something else opens up, and then you'll do that instead. But you still have to start walking. If you, it is far easier to, in riding a bicycle, to steer to the right or the left if you're actually pedaling than to kind of sit on the chair and say, God, if you really want to do it, then you will pick me up and transport me to the place you want me to go. Sometimes you have to put yourself in motion and just start walking. 
and give the Holy Spirit room, can steer you to the right, can steer to the left, but, you, but God, I'm going to walk. Unless you tell me otherwise, I'm going to move forward. That, that, that's, that's just what a life with God looks like. I'm trying to decide just even how far I want to try to go in the last few minutes I have where I'm clearly taking too much time. I think like one of the things that's most fundamental for me about all this is that Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation, the full revelation of who God is, and God has always been. Um, we, Jesus is so clear in his teachings over and over again that God's the one who makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And I just think it's important that we get that. I feel like very few of us really have that kind of framework. We still think God is all about retribution. And if we're, you know, so, so, so then it becomes once very paralyzing to make sure that we get everything right because what if God's mad at us? See, here's the thing. Even if you make the most right decisions, the most godly, the most discerning, there's still going to be trouble and hardship. There's still going to be great difficulty. There's still going to be pain. There's still going to be tragedy. It's, it, it's the way that it goes. And yet, um, n- n- no matter where and how we move, if we're open and available to it, God will always be doing beautiful things as well. I just think we still live, many of us, in a system where everything's uh, you know, tit for tat. Everything's like um, retribution. Everything's reward, punishment. And I just don't think that's how the world really works. My standby example about this, and maybe I need to leave it alone at some point, but I just see all this abuse so much. It's like, okay, so living in Oklahoma, going to get tornadoes. It's going to happen. And if we decide as a, as a community to go on a 60-day prayer and fasting kind of thing, probably because of where we live, still could be tornadoes sometime. <laughs> Less likely to have them in Charlotte, where I come from, not because people are holier, you know what I mean? I love it like when something bad happens and people always want to try to figure out like what God is doing and who God's judging and all that kind of stuff. Man, that makes me want to just beat the living daylights out of people. <laughs> really does. Really does. The experiment breaks down really, really fast. Las Vegas is called Sin City. But I'm doing this off the top of my head. Las Vegas is not likely to be wiped out with a hurricane, every time, like, hurricane, that's always the televangelists are kind of saying, well, it's just this group or that group or whatever. Like, no one ever says things like, hurricanes are caused by changes in barometric pressure. <laughs> if you live in Florida, you are more likely to deal with a hurricane than if you live in other places. New Orleans flooded must be God's judgment. 20 feet below sea level, people. <laughs> it will be a miracle if it does not flood. In the next five years, because you know what I'm saying? Like these are not, like everything's always, and, I, and I, I, think this, I think this is actually really important because if you have, if you conceive God as being some kind of a monster, you know, um, he, he, he loves this person because they, they, they live in a land where there's a lot of opportunity and everything seems to go great, but he doesn't love that child in Nepal. That, 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 their ancestors did something wrong. They've been cursed, because of what happens. It's that, that is a terrible God. And, and see, all right, this is where this sermon's getting really big. And again, I know I'm going over time. Please forgive me. I don't think I've ever quite pushed my limits in that way here. The reason I think all of that becomes like so incredibly significant, there are people who do come to believe in a God who tightly scripts everything, like it's all ordered, everything, like in a very particular way. Everything happens according to the will of God, and it's all according to script. What I dislike most about that kind of idea, and I'm just going to say it like I feel it, 
you, you have a monstrous, awful God in exchange for getting that certainty that you want. I know that everything happens must be the perfect will of God because it happened. That God is not a God that you could really decide to love and want to worship. If you really think that whenever something bad happens, it's because God's mad at them and someone didn't do the right thing. Like that's like, the, the fact of the matter is God's a good God. What we see through the cross of Jesus is that God's ultimate response to humanity is to love, to forgive, to bless, to heal. That's always the heart of God. But we live in a broken, fallen world where bad stuff does happen. And, and that doesn't mean that it's always because someone has made the wrong choices. I really want, and, and this is where I wish I had a little bit more time, the, the, I, I just think we don't have enough space, many of us, in how we think about God and life for chaos. Because there is a certain amount of chaos that, that I think that, that in a general sense God allows because we live in a world where God has created us and God has created animals and plants to be free. And now, now the beautiful thing is I do believe uh, I have a hopeful vision of the future because I think there are some things that aren't fixed. Some things aren't made right in our life. But I do believe in the, in the long game, God is the one who heals and restores. And I know the, the beauty that's coming. But in the meantime, creation is kind of wild and free. And whether this is, sounds encouraging to you or not, I just don't believe that every square inch of the cosmos is somehow directly claimed by God or Satan and that everything is, is, is just so clear cut all the time. I think sometime in a world where there's freedom and there's a certain kind of chaos that, that God just allows. My, um, I'll say this and I'll, uh, and as fast as I can and I will be done and edit for the next service. Consider this the uncut version, the better version, because it's the uncut. I don't know if that's actually true. The, um, but for me, the book of Job really, really makes this clear, which I find ironic because a lot of times people read the book of Job, and because in the beginning Satan asked for permission to tempt and test Job, and God says yes, they read this as, see, everything goes through God's filter. But as the book plays out, the message of Job as it develops is very, very different Job's friends live in that kind of tightly ordered world, whereas so long as they're making the most righteous, godly decisions and doing everything in a studious way, good things will happen to you, and bad things only happen to the, others, to the other guys. And, and this, you know, this gets really tricky, right, because not only then does God always bless the righteous, but then there's a sense like there, there's no space for grace in that world. Um, it's, it's, it, it's all very orderly. You know, things start going bad. I must, have, I must have made the wrong decision. I must have really blown it in some way. This is how that world always looks. But as the book uh, continues to, to develop, and especially towards the end, God doesn't speak until those last few chapters. But when he does, the things that God speaks about, what God, what God talks to Job about is chaos. And I, I won't even bother for us to put these up on the screen. You can read it later. Job uh, 38, 39 through, through 41, and then especially Job 39, 1 through 17. I really love that text. God's talking to Job about how the world works, and he's saying things like, skipping around, he, he's talking about the way that, oh, who has let the wild ass go free? 
Who has loosed the bonds of the swift ass to which I've given the step for its home, the salt land for its dwelling place? It scorns the tumult of the city. It does not hear the scouts of the driver, or the shouts of the driver, rather. It ranges the mountains as its pasture and teach and it searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will it spend the night at your crib? Can you tie it in the fur with ropes? Or will it harrow the valleys after you? It just goes on. But I, the, the point for me is that God keeps saying over and over again, like, look how wild and free the world is. L- look at how wild I've created things to be. Job, you, you think you understand these things and you don't. Your friends think that they understand how the world works and they don't. There, there, there's a mystery to all of this. God, ha- God allows a kind of creation where he's not micromanaging everything. And yes, I do believe that God sometimes can sovereignly step in and, and do something miraculous, you know, and, and, and kind of interrupt in this way. He can do that. I don't know or understand why God does that sometimes, kind of interrupt the order of created things, and other times he does not. But what I, but, but what I do know is this. There is just a certain amount of chaos that is not always directly good. It is not directly bad. It's just life. It's just life. Sometimes you get a cold because there are germs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Fluke accidents happen. Doesn't mean that God doesn't still work and somehow through all that again to do something beautiful and redemptive. But everything's not always somebody's fault. There's a certain degree of wildness. And I'm just, good grief. I'm just trying to say, in the end of all of this, I would love for somebody to get to a place to where instead of clinging on so tightly, you can kind of just, metaphorically, roll the dice, flip the coin, do the best you can with the information that God has given you. Do the best you can to discern what seems to be the right path from from, from where you are and move forward and be okay with that. And and trust that God's going to be there and God's going to be good. Somehow or another, God's going to be good. You don't know how he's going to provide, but you trust he's going to provide. And if you, and if, you, if you need a course correction, he'll show you what the course correction is. I just want to give somebody permission to just move, pedal the bike, do something, not, not frantically, not like I'm, I'm just, I got to make something happen, but, but wherever there's a sense of grace, wherever there's a sense of opportunity, yeah, lean into that. Give God a chance to work. Stand up with me, please. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.